Hello, welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Lisa Fortier, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined by co-host and social media editor, Dr. Sarah Wright. We are bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Jane Sykes. Jane, we are so excited to speak with you today. Jane is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and is the Executive Director of Entrepreneurship and Innovation and is a Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. Jane's research focuses on infectious diseases of dogs and cats, especially of those of public health significance. In this episode, we're going to talk about Jane's October 2022 JAVMA and AJVR Currency One Health Manuscripts, a global one health perspective on leptospirosis in humans and animals, and understanding leptospirosis, application of state-of-the-art molecular typing tools with the One Health Lens. Dr. Sykes, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah, thank you so much for the invitation and opportunity to discuss a topic that really highlights the importance of a One Health approach. Of course. All right, we'll dive right in. As you describe in your manuscripts, leptospirosis is an important zoonotic pathogen. What do you think is misunderstood about the One Health approach to preventing this disease? Yeah, so leptospirosis is caused by various species and strains of this spirochete that belongs to the genus Leptospira, and it affects just a huge variety of different animal species and humans. You know, we've often thought about it as a as a mammalian disease, but even amphibians and reptiles can be infected. And although many infections are mild and associated with this sort of non-specific febrile illness, Leptospira can cause really severe multisystemic illness, and that can be manifest as acute kidney injury, liver injury, ocular disease, and of course, without early and aggressive treatment, death. Um, the spirochete is shed in the urine of infected animals, and it contaminates the environment, persisting in mud and water sources. So people and animals get infected when the spirochete penetrates mucous membranes or abraded skin, just like a wine bottle corkscrew um, penetrating a cork is the way it invades tissues. And so those people and animals can get it from the environment or they can get it from direct contact with other animals that are shedding the organism. Therefore, we really have to have this understanding of which animals are shedding pathogenic leptospires and where those animals are what host factors predispose to infection, what factors promote persistence of those pathogenic organisms in the environment, and the spatial distribution of organisms in the environment in order to best prevent the disease. In other words, it's really a perfect example of the disease triad, environment, pathogen, and hosts. And note that Classically, in the disease triad, the word host is part of that triad, but I really think it should be plural. We need to be thinking about all hosts, um, animals and humans, and a huge variety of different species so that all of those potential hosts are considered as sources of infection. And the other problem that we have at the moment is that while vaccination is effective to prevent the disease, current vaccines for leptospirosis um, in animals are strain or serovirus specific. So in particular, they only protect against certain serovirus, which are defined by the outer lipopolysaccharide antigens of the organism. And because there are hundreds of different serovirus, until we have more broadly protective vaccines, we need to know what serovirus are currently circulating. Because we have physicians working with humans with the disease, public health officials responding to outbreaks, 
veterinarians working with animals with the disease, microbiologists studying the pathogen, diagnosticians developing better tests, and ecologists studying those environmental factors. Understanding laparosporosis requires that all of those individuals collaborate together to best address the problem. So you see truly a one health approach is needed. Very nice. I like the analogy too that you use for the tissue penetration with the wine cork. You've made remarkable accomplishments in infectious disease testing and surveillance. What were the clinical challenges that led your group down this path? And do you remember any specific cases? Yeah, thank you so much for that. You know, I, I think I really have to owe my inspiration to my PhD advisor, Professor Glenn Browning, uh, who sparked my career interest in microbiology um, as a veterinary student. Uh, when I was a PhD student at the University of Melbourne in Australia studying PCR diagnostics for feline respiratory pathogens, I became really fascinated in the way that development and application of new diagnostic tests and innovation in diagnostic test development could completely change our understanding of an infectious disease problem. So during my PhD, I was encouraged to pursue a basic science career rather than become a clinician, but I saw this disconnect between research that was occurring in laboratories and what was really needed to solve real clinical problems and the importance of clinician scientists to bridge that gap um, as hard as it is to be doing both things at once. So my interest in studying laptosporosis actually occurred during my residency at the University of Minnesota because um, I realized that there are a lot of cases were being seen there uh, and because really only peritoneal dialysis and not hemodialysis was there, I saw several dogs die or experience very expensive and lengthy hospitalizations. And I also saw all the challenges and concerns about the zoonotic potential of the disease when handling infected dogs and the fact that we didn't really have great diagnostic tests to know whether precautions were needed. And around that time, actually, really interestingly, laptosporosis was thought to be an exotic disease in dogs in Australia. And dogs with positive antibody titers were not actually allowed uh, into the country. Um, but I realized that the disease was likely present in Australia based on my clinical experiences there. I felt like I'd seen some cases that were similar, but it, really the disease wasn't being recognized in part due to the lack of ra rapid and reliable diagnostic tests as well as clinical specialty expertise. And sure enough, since that time, um, outbreaks have been recognized widely in Australia. Uh, and in fact, there was one outbreak that was described in an abstract presentation. Um, the outbreak was in Sydney in Australia, and it was uh, reported our ISCADE symposium in Scotland just last week. Um, with improvements in diagnostic tests and surveillance, so cases are now getting recognized and treated more appropriately. And one of our team members at UC Davis, um, Crystal Reagan, who was previously my infectious disease fellow and is now a faculty member at Davis, um, has been working to develop and refine a machine learning algorithm now that can help clinicians recognize leptospirosis in dogs early. And this is something that can be easily implemented in primary care and emergency practices. And ultimately, we think a similar tool could be used in human medicine. Um, and currently, we're also embarking on projects with collaborators here at UC Davis, uh, UCLA, in Sri Lanka, um, at, in Iowa, at the USDA, and Arizona to use new molecular tools to study environment hosts and pathogen interactions. 
Yeah, thank you, Jane. You're not going to run out of work to do with over 100 or hundreds of serovars, as you said. So uh, one of the things in the Vertex podcast that we're trying to do is really to highlight what an amazing career veterinarians they have. We have so many great opportunities, and you're obviously a role model for that. I really think what you've done is phenomenal. In addition, addition to your time as a gopher, you also have a little uh, Georgia Bulldog in your background where you got your MBA. <laughs> how how does that MBA affect how you view uh, your approach to this mission of One Health? Yeah. So I think, you know, after 10 years as infection control officer for the UC Davis Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital, you know, I held a variety of different senior leadership roles in the clinic, including director of small animal clinical services and then chief veterinary medical officer. Um, and outside of UC Davis, I was concurrently working to grow the International Society for Companion Animal Infectious Diseases, which we founded in 2006. And I've also held several leadership roles in the ACVIM. And I quickly realized that, like most academicians and veterinarians in general, I was poorly equipped with the business knowledge needed to optimize those activities. And so I took sabbatical time to do the MBA. And that really helped to develop my interest in the importance of supporting innovation and entrepreneurship and growing organizations that could uh, dovetail with One Health activities um, and also things like acceleration of diagnostic test development for important infectious diseases that have One Health implications. Really, business skills, I think, are so important in everything that we do. Um, and I think um, many veterinarians often don't appreciate how such formal training and business can really help us be successful even in academic, academia. And so, for example, business and negotiation skills can help us with writing grant proposals uh, and running a research team more effectively. We're, we're really just trying to sell a concept to funding bodies when we write a proposal and we can have a more productive laboratory if we better understand how to better manage people. And uh, for someone who is pursuing a career in One Health, you know, I think all of those activities can make you more successful. Yeah, that's really, really great advice on, uh, you know, nobody teaches us how to be teachers. Nobody taught us how to be administrators. So that that's really, really good advice on how to emulate your success. If you were to say right now, what are the knowledge gaps on either the preventative side, what are the emerging, currently emerging threats with respect to leptospirosis, treatment opportunities, where, where do you see, when you peek around the corner and look at lepto, what's what's coming at us and what, what do we have on the horizon to treat the animals and the people? Yeah. So, you know, I think that the disease is really fascinating because, you know, just when you think it's settled down and there's not a lot of new things happening with it, something new emerges, like a new outbreak that has different characteristics to previous outbreaks. Um, and also with the development of all of these molecular typing tools and new mRNA-based vaccines, I think probably what we're going to see in the future is less and less emphasis on serovar classification um, and we're going to hopefully in the future see vaccines that are broadly protective that don't protect only against serovars and not based on LPS immunity. Um, and once that happens, once those vaccines are developed, we really don't need to care about serovars anymore and we need to be focusing on genotyping 
um, and molecular typing metagenomics approaches. And one of the really cool things that's happening right now uh, in lepto research is combining environmental detection of pathogenic organisms and potential reservoir host DNA. So making associations between the presence of, for example, cattle DNA and pathogenic serovars in water sources um, close to other animals or humans that were, might be exposed to those water sources. And so now we're not just looking in the environment for organisms, we're actually trying to correlate that with the hosts that are contaminating those water sources. Um, so I think we're going to see more studies of that nature, um, and I'm pretty excited to get involved in that work. It's really, you know, this is really one health, right? You're looking at the environment, you're looking at the incidental hosts and you're looking at mammalian hosts and then you're looking at the pathogen and typing that pathogen, knowing it whether it's a virulent species or a low virulent species. I think we're also going to understand that there are going to be some strains of Leptospira that really don't um, survive in the environment very well at all. They're more um, host-associated pathogenic species. And we'll find out, for example, that those organisms are transmitted by direct animal-to-animal contact, such as predation in dogs, like when they eat rodents, um, whereas there'll be other strains that better survive in the environment. Um, and so, you know, the tra transmission dynamics of different strains will be different. And so that will lead to potentially different different recommendations for prevention. It's fascinating how there's always more work to be done in the One Health field. For example, I feel like as soon as you feel like you've solved one problem, another one emerges and another door opens too, essentially. So Really, really, yeah, and the outbreak that occurred in West Los Angeles recently was particularly interesting um, because you know it was in a region where it was felt that lepto wasn't common, and of course the vets in that region were not vaccinating dogs for lepto, um, and really almost two hundred dogs identified in a six month period. Uh, one of our new residents here was an intern down there at a specialty practice, and he saw thirty dogs with lepto within a few months, which is just amazing uh, experience. And all of those dogs were really confirmed uh, through multiple means to actually have lepto. Um, and many of those dogs had been in dog daycare environments and we were able to show that um, that the dogs were uh, shedding a very uh, specific strain of Cirovar canicola. And that was unusual because we think of dogs as reservoir hosts for canicola um, and not likely to be sick with the disease. Um, and so we don't really know how that was getting transmitted among dogs or whether rodents were involved, um, but it's really different dynamics to other lepto uh, cases that we've seen in dogs. That's incredible. I can't imagine seeing 30 cases of leptospirosis during my rotating internship and my own dogs. It's wow, that's something. <laughs> so as you touched on before, you were previously the chief veterinary medical officer for UC Davis. Under your leadership, you accomplished several growth projects and initiatives. How did this experience shape your career as an author in the One Health arena? Yeah, I think one of the best things about this role was the window that it provided into the activities of all of the clinicians and staff in the hospital, learning about all the clinical research and the advanced patient care activities that were occurring and factors that motivated people as well as the challenges that they were experiencing in both their personal and work lives 
It also taught me about the importance of getting buy-in from the ground up when making change. I mean, change that is imposed by others is really hard for people to manage and deal with. It creates a lot of stress and it can have unanticipated consequences. So I learned that it's just really critical that people understand thoroughly why a change is being made, help them be part of creating that change and to not change too many things at once. Um, People also really want to have the opportunity to comment and be heard. So I learned a lot about the importance of communication and that good communication does take considerable time and thought. And so those lessons have really shaped my approaches to problems in my current leadership roles, especially right now, ACVIM president. And I try really hard to model this for our other junior faculty students, um, residents and clinicians that I interact with. Yeah, change is never easy to deal with and always can complicate things. I definitely understand that too. Even personally right now, I'm in the middle of moving actually. So definitely know that change can be hard. Back to your manuscript for a moment. What is the clinical take-home message from your work that you'd like other veterinarians to know? Yeah, so the clinical take-home messages from my work for veterinarians is that leptospirosis is a disease that occurs everywhere and it can affect any dog breed from any environment as well as a huge variety of other animal species. And I think veterinarians should understand that while precautions are still indicated when handling dogs that are suspected to have infections, people are actually more likely to get the disease through contact with animals that are subclinically shedding organisms, um, such as rats, livestock, or horses, and potentially also dogs, um, or through exposure to contaminated water sources that um, that they're exposed to. So they need to know about the limitations of diagnostic tests for lepto, as well as the importance of vaccination. The current four serovar vaccines for dogs are really safe and efficacious, and now we almost exclusively see lepto in unvaccinated dogs. So I really believe that given the severity of the disease, widespread exposure, and zoonotic concerns that all dogs should get vaccinated for lepto with four serovar vaccines. Uh, Right now we're working on an updated ACVIM leptospirosis consensus statement at the moment, um, and that'll be a great resource for small animal practitioners hopefully it will get published within the next year or so. Uh, And if veterinarians see an increase in lepto in their practices, I really would encourage them to report the disease to their local public health department and veterinary internists that have infectious disease interests, as well as council owners about the need to talk to their physician about it should they develop illness. And that will really help to bridge those barriers that are needed for the One Health approach to be effective. Well, thank you, Jane, for being such a fabulous leader and for contributing to JABMA and AJVR into this podcast. We have a favorite question that we like to ask on veterinary vertex, and that is, what is Dr. Jane Sykes never without? (laughs) Oh, dear. I think I would have to say my iPhone, but that's a bit lacking on the work-life balance theme. So on the infectious disease theme, maybe I could say my microbiome. Um, But really, the answer I wanted to give to highlight my Australian patriotism is Vegemite. Um, So so I guess it's Vegemite. Oh, and my dog. (laughs) We're going to acquire all these answers. They're all over the board and they're always a really fun part of the vertex. (laughs) (laughs) Part of my ignorance, but what is Vegemite? 
Oh, it's a yeast extract extract spread um, that it's sort of a, it looks like black tar. Uh, it's very salty, but it sort of tastes malty as well. Um, there's a, a, a similar product called Marmite in the UK, but it tastes totally different. It's much sweeter than Vegemite. Um, I think people make the mistake of slathering it onto toast too thickly. And so they don't like it because they're like, this is gross. It's so salty. Um, but you're just supposed to put little flecks on it, sort of like umami um, that you just sprinkle it on toast with lots of butter usually. And then then it's really good. Cool. I'll have to try it. Lisa, we'll have to bring that to our uh, next division meeting for everyone to try. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Sykes. Really appreciate your time today. You can read Dr. Sykes' full manuscripts in JAMA and AJBR on our journal's website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright, joined by Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Yeah, thanks again, Jane. And until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye.